Most of us have an inner critic, a voice in our head that tells us we aren't worthy of things or that we can't accomplish something for one reason or another. This voice is called your inner critic. And not only is it a real asshole, it's a liar. Welcome to episode 25, where my special guest, Maya Sharfi, founder of the Build Yourself Workshop, joins us to teach us how to silence your inner critic and move beyond the shitty narrative it plays in your head. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. The inner critic, the voice in your head, this voice isn't usually our own. It's created by the voices we hear when we are in the formative years of our childhood. It's the voice of your past, your mother, your father, your aunt, the school bully. Listen, I can tell you exactly what my inner critic sounds like. It's the voice of my grandmother. I've mentioned her before. The woman who not only lived through the depression, she kicked polio's ass while she was doing it. Now, if you think my grandmother grew up to be a pearl-donning, cardigan-wearing, lady-who-lunches kind of woman, you'd be dead wrong. She grew up to be the kind of woman who simply cannot be pleased. She doesn't care about your feelings, has zero time for your bullshit, and if you need it, she can certainly give you something to cry about. Sometimes, the voice of the inner critic is passed down through families like heirlooms, from one generation to the next. The way we are viewed growing up and the attitudes directed towards us shape how we see ourselves and can morph into your own inner critic and that hostile and judgmental voice can become loud and paralyzing if we let it. Because your inner critic is an asshole and a liar and deserves no space in your thoughts, you need to arm yourself with ways to overcome this voice in your head. And Maya is just the person to help you move past your limiting beliefs, including how to silence your inner critic and that nagging piece of shit internal voice that may be holding you back in business, your career, or just your life in general. Maya is a trained facilitator and has run research efforts for the Harvard Business School. She has trained national industry groups like Women in Innovation and the American Institute of Architects and works with leadership and staff at global design and innovation companies. And today, she's here to share her knowledge with us. All right, Maya, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have you talk to the listeners. Yeah, jazz to be here. Always love when we collaborate and do stuff together. Today, we're going to talk about the inner critic. You are a bit of an expert on silencing inner critics, overcoming inner critics. I want to, people to be able to understand how to identify the inner critic. So can you talk a little bit about how one can identify their own inner critic? Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I start with a story, Julie? Sure. Okay. So I'm trained as a landscape architect, but I also have a background in women's empowerment coaching. Before I became a designer, I've been involved in women's supporting women probably since I was in high school. So it's just been this long-term value. And when I was in design school, I was at Harvard, which is a place where there is a lot of this feeling that I don't really belong here. I'm not as smart as everyone, et cetera, et cetera. I was submitting for a uh, fellowship application and I was like, oh, my application isn't good enough. I put it together at the last minute and I came into school and I was kind of looking for permission to quit. It was due in maybe four or five hours and I'd stayed up really late that night. And so 
I picked the wrong person to chat with. I picked this woman, Caroline James, who's just this kind of firebrand. Caroline was not the right person to ask to be let off the hook because she was like, have you read the book? Lean in. No, you have to submit. You never know who's going to be reading it. Like you just don't know. Maybe it's an amazing application. And I had this crazy moment of shame because I had spent probably my whole experience in design school watching my really talented female colleagues and, you know, inner critic issues happen to men and women, but, you know, talking about their projects, like they weren't that great. And in the meantime, they were these star designers or not applying to places that they'd like to work because they didn't feel good enough. And I had been giving people assignments like, I want that cover letter to Catherine Gustafson on my desk Monday morning. And here I was looking to quit because I didn't think my stuff was good enough. And so, and I didn't even realize I was doing it, which is one of the very insidious things about the inner critic. And so I pulled myself together, like through that application. And for me, it was just this wake up call of, oh, okay. I don't even realize that this thing is operating on me invisibly because I'm literally trained as a women's empowerment facilitator. And I didn't even know that this is what, what was happening. So I would say the best way to identify, there's kind of two ways to identify the inner critic. The first is, is a little bit wiggly, which is what are you not doing? <laughs> Asking yourself, what are you not doing? And one of the best ways that you can do that is to look at what people who you admire are doing, right? Are they writing books? Are they pitching clients? Are they reaching out to potential collaborators without being invited in? Are they putting their projects up for awards? What are they doing? And then what is, you know, if you can almost think about from the most scary to you to the least scary to you, but still scary. Like, okay, well, reaching out to someone who I don't already know to collaborate, that sounds kind of scary, but that doesn't sound as scary as writing a book. Like, okay, start doing that <laughs> because the critic is invisible. And then, you know, the other thing that you can do, and this is an assignment that I'll give my coaching clients, is I have them take a three-day period and any time the inner critic shows up and it can show up in all kinds of ways. You just write it down. So when you think, oh, this isn't good enough, you just write that down. And when you think, oh, my kids are going to think that I'm not a good enough mom because I stayed late at work, you write that down and you don't even judge it. And then you look and say, okay, now that it's out of my head, what am I seeing here? What are the patterns? I, I don't remember in my life exactly when I realized that I had a voice in my head that was <laughs> telling me things that were false, that were telling me things in the voice of other people in my life. So I always say my inner critic is my, it sounds just like my 96 year old grandmother. Like it is okay. everything she told me as a child. Mm -hmm. And I don't know when I realized that it was a, it was disassociated from my own voice, but it was deafening. Is there a certain time in our lives that most people start to fall prey to the inner critic? Is, is there certain things that happen to people that it starts to rear its head? Yeah. The classic moment is when you're doing something that up levels you and that can show up in a lot of different ways. So it can show up a lot in school, right? It can show up a lot, especially if you're somebody with a background that is not from a position of privilege. So if you are a person of color, let's say maybe, let's say that you're the first person in your family to go to college, that's when inner critic and imposter syndrome is going to show up. And I would say that over the course of our careers, we definitely face it in schools, but then we also face it in these moments where we're leveling up in our careers, especially when there's 
a lot of uncertainty, classic places where you're growing from a manager to a director level, and you need to kind of have a vision. You need to be proactive. You need to say, you kind of sometimes need to push back with clients and say, I know that you want to spend your budget this way, but here's why it's actually going to be a problem for you three years down the line, where you really need to start to assert yourself more and define yourself. That's where the inner critic tends to pop in and it will so it'll, it'll kind of push you to be more tentative. It'll show up in people pleasing. It can show up in overwork. That's a big thing that I see. Um, so sometimes a big thing I work on with some of my clients is owning their expertise and trusting that all of the years of school and education and experience on the job and extra certifications will be there in that moment so that they don't need to come up with the entire scheme or figure out everything before they start because they already know more than other people walking into that room and they can trust that so that they can free up time and space for going to bed on time, spending time with your family, right? Like doing something that fuels you, right? So I would say whenever you're doing something that involves leveling up, especially if you don't know exactly what that is, because you have to kind of discover it as you go. That's when the inner critic expect it to be there. And, you know, you'll, you'll do a little bit better because you'll Mm -hmm. think, okay, right. This is going to be part of the process. It's going to show up whenever I up level and it's not necessarily a sign I'm doing something wrong. It's a sign that I'm doing something right because I want to be more than I was last year. Right. Right. Do we ever get rid of that inner voice? And if we don't, I don't know the answer to that, but if we don't, what are the tools to sort of mute it? (laughs) So I tell my clients that this is the, like, this is the only time you're going to find out you have another voice in your head and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. (laughs) So the bet there's two larger scale tools, which are, they're almost like mantras. It's a way of being that I find can give you a lot of relief. So The first is just recognizing it and noticing it because when you do that, you're able to set this one voice aside. And there's a thinker, Tara Moore, who also uh, writes and speaks a lot about confidence. And she actually believes that we have the voice of the inner mentor and the voice of the inner critic. And it's possible that you actually have multiple voices in your head. And again, that's not a bad thing. That's just natural. And so as Julie said, I, I find that it's hard for me to just think, oh, I hear you inner critic. So what I'll do is I'll either write it down or I, I have a business wing woman who's a, she's kind of like my business accountability partner and I'll send her doubtograms where I'll record a quick voice note. <laughs> I love that name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, okay, doutogram. This just happened. It's triggering this, making me feel stressed about this, sending it off to you so that it's not physically here anymore (laughs) and no need to respond. I like send it off and that really works for me. However you express it, being able to note it and Mm -hmm. separate from it, I think is the key. But then the other piece of it is sometimes there's no way around except through is doing the things that scare you and doing them multiple times. And this is where I think there's so much value for your listeners because networking and business development that you will not be successful at business development if you go and try to develop one client. One of my clients who's an introvert, everything she wants is on the other side of becoming better at public speaking, better at networking, better at client relations. I was like, okay, you need to have 15 conversations 
15 and you're not allowed to complain or worry that it's not possible for you until you've had 15 conversations. So when you start hearing that inner critic, I want you to tell that inner critic, oh yeah, Maya and I have an appointment with you, um, but I can't meet with you. You know, I'm only on three right now. I'm only on 12 right now come back at 15 and then we'll talk. Right. And she just has to get the numbers in, have the 15 conversations, because what will happen is that she'll feel awkward and terrible at number one and number two and number three, by number four, it's going to get a little more comfortable, but still be hard by number five, by number six, she's going to be thinking, Oh, that worked last time. Oh, I should totally do this next time. By number seven, she's going to be like, wait, I did seven. That's kind of a big deal. Oh gosh, I have (laughs) eight more to go. And by 15, odds are she'll be able to get what she came for, right? The specific outcome, if you're doing business development, it might be an invitation to apply for a project or a opportunity to come in and present to the board or whatever it is. Odds are you're gonna get the outcome you are seeking and you're gonna be on the other side of doing something that scares you. And so that's really the way to do it. Um, and the, you know, there are things to do to make it easier to do things that scare you, which is why I have accountability partners, but I'm happy to talk about them for people who are like, well, I can't do that because everybody can, especially if you do things to make it easier. But the truth is that the clients that I've seen that have gotten incredible outcomes, they've all faced down things that scared them. And they just step by tiny steps did something that scared them and then repeated it. So I'm going to go back to something you said, an inner mentor and an inner critic. And so that caused me to think of two questions. If our inner critic is built off of a narrative that we learn in our formative years and voices that we hear, the inner mentor, can we find somebody to be that person for us who believes in us and who can create a different voice in our head about what we are capable of? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, I have a business wing woman. I've known her for about five or six years. We've kind of built this trust in this relationship over the years. She's probably the core person who I have. And so I'm able, when I'm feeling stressed about something or insecure about something or unsure, because we talked a little bit about this, sometimes the inner critic can hide in complexity and say, well, that's too complicated. You can't move forward because you don't know exactly what you need to do yet. And that's really just fear speaking. And so We have a regular cadence where we meet roughly once a week. Um, We each give each other updates and usually we've set goals about the things that are actually going to move us forward versus the things that are easy to do. So for me, when I was filling out my first coaching program, I called people and I said, do you know one or two people who you think I should chat with or start a conversation with or could be a good fit? And it, it really freaked me out. And Kristen actually volunteered to be my first call because I was putting it off. She said, call me sometime this week. Don't tell me when you're going to do it and just pretend that I'm one of your referral calls. So I called her up and I practiced the first call in her. And then we talked about what was hard and what worked. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was so embarrassing. And (laughs) oh, wait, I think I'm getting better at this. And so my relationship with Kristen held both the accountability and also my ability to see the things that my inner critic was saying. And also it was a place for me to like work, to workshop it. Right. Because again, when you show up to do things that scare you in a consistent way, there's no way that you can't improve your strategy because you learn from every repetition. I think that an accountability partner friend uh, sounds like an excellent 
business tool. How can someone find that person? I, I think that people might be wondering, well, who would want to do that for me or be there for me? So how does somebody find that person? First of all, almost anybody can be an accountability partner. And sometimes it takes a while, just like finding a therapist, it can take a while to find the one that's the click. Yeah. And I fired my first therapist. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I was like, this woman is not mean enough to me. <laughs> yeah. <go>. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. So what Julie's saying is thinking a little bit about what you might want from them. Do you just want someone to challenge you? Do you want someone to listen to some of your fears? Do you want someone to help you if you're a business owner, uh, like you have no boss to help you workshop something. So that's why, you know, I think the most successful business owners have coaches and programs and relationships and that they're in, and then sit down and brainstorm three potential people and pick the first person you're going to approach and say, Hey, I heard about this concept. I think it would be really helpful. Is it something that you're interested in? And then you decide how do you want to meet and what frequency do you want it to be? And I would recommend saying, let's try this for two or three months and then see how it feels because you won't get to that level of this is that pattern showing up again. This is that you won't get there immediately, but if you show up consistently for a period of time, what will happen is you'll build trust with each other over time. And ideally, if you're doing it with someone with whom you have some trust built already, you'll be a step further. Right. So you do it for a period of time and then you see what it's like. And if you feel like, okay, this is great. This is adding, this is worth the cost of the time. I feel supported. I'm getting insights, I'm doing things that scare me, then keep it going. And if not, go find someone else. And I'm assuming you need structure on that. If you're going to have an accountability partner, you need to say, okay, we're going to talk this many times a week or this many times a month. And you set it. And that's something that's an appointment that you always have with that person. So that it doesn't get moved off the schedule for something else. Yeah. The nice thing about having it be a meeting is that nobody forgets if it's a recurring meeting and it can get moved. So that's how Kristen and I do it. So I like a recurring meeting for that, but it can even be 20 minutes if you're short on time. I do actually, if you want, we can, we can get you the link and you can link it in. Um, I do have a guide to an accountability partnership that it has, it has a suggested agenda. It has things you should talk about in your first meeting to kind of set those. Yes, that would be great. So yeah, yeah I would definitely, definitely do that. That's, that's awesome. So if we go back to the inner critic, and so we all have an inner critic, except for maybe psychopaths, uh, <laughs> I'm assuming, and we all have to live with it in some form of another, are there positive aspects to the inner critic? Can we find anything positive within that voice? Um I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm not, I, I feel like the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, the like functional answer is no. Um, and the, I think a kind of help, helpful analogy for thinking about the inner critic, for me at least, is that, I mean, I think this sometimes can let people feel more calm towards it, is that your inner critic is like a skewed perception of reality. So supposedly when people who have anorexia look in a mirror, they're not seeing like the contours of their body. They're actually, they're seeing a totally different body than the body that's there. It's right. Um, and so, yeah, exactly. What you see is not what's there. And I actually believe that like, that's kind of a challenge of human existence, which is that everything that we experience is an interpretation. Mm -hmm. And there are ways in which we can ground those interpretations in data and in evidence, but 
your inner critic is one skewed reality. There's basically all these voices that are somewhat skewed. And so the thing that I prefer to do is to say, okay, how can I test this, right? Do I think that I'm not qualified to be um, to be an expert? A lot of my clients really struggle with stepping mm-hmm. into feeling like experts. I'm not an expert yet. Okay, well, is that true? Why don't I apply to three conferences and then we'll assess whether or not I'm, I'm qualified to be an expert because okay. an external party will look at what I think that I have to share. I almost think the inner critics, it has a perspective. It has a storyline and I'm like, great. Thanks for weighing in. Now, where can I get some other data about this? I think that even when you are an expert, so I technically people call me a networking expert. I clearly have 22 years of networking I speak all over the country on networking. I wrote a book on networking. I have this podcast (laughs) on networking. And still, and I will say that you never get over it. Like I Mm -hmm. decided at the end of the year to to launch these breakthrough sessions, these one-on-ones. And I just put it out to my mailing list and um, on social media. And I remember when I put it out there, I was like, who's going to want to do this? Like that voice in my head. Um, and what happened was I had a great response and I had a a tremendous amount of one-on-ones and what happened with every single one was people thanked me for doing them. And I can't believe that even after all that I've done with networking, I can't believe that I almost let this idea of, well, who's going to want to talk to me, hold me back when what I did. And, and I think people have to realize that their talents, their expertise is of service to other people. People can learn from you. They can learn from what you know, and you can really, really help them. When I got letters back from people saying how just that 60 minutes changed a certain trajectory and they had confidence and whatever, I think there are a lot of people out there who don't understand how much their expertise will help other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the experts that we admire the most are always learning as they're teaching. One of the things that I think can be helpful if, first of all, there will, there will never be anybody, who, anyone who flies from heaven and puts a crown on your head and says, you are now an expert. So that moment is never going to happen. Right. But if expertise is actually about, it's almost like water flowing from one place to another. It's, you've got knowledge and it's flowing from a place where you might have more knowledge about this one issue to someone who has less. I remember when I first started giving speeches, I wasn't afraid of public speaking. I wasn't afraid of what I knew. I was afraid of question and answer. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. What I realized quickly realized when we got to the end of my speech and there was question and answers that there was never a question I couldn't answer. And I had been so afraid that again, this, inner critic, like, who are you up on this stage talking to this many people? That was what solidified my expertise. I was like, I'm writing a damn book, you know, like (laughs) there was no question I couldn't answer. And the questions that people asked me, I had immediate responses to them because I had been doing this for so long. And again, that's that thing, like sharing your knowledge, that is a gift you have to be able to share your knowledge with someone else. So And Julie, you kind of said it implicitly, but I think it's worth bringing it to the surface. Those experiences, getting those questions is probably what spurred you to write that book because hearing, oh, here's what I'm thinking in my situation. And then having to respond to that live 
you're learning as an expert. You're learning how your framework actually needs to sit in people's lives. There's a back and forth, right? Learning and teaching is going both ways. You're generating more knowledge because you're being asked to apply it. So I think a lot of the time we try to act like experts. And there are definitely ways where people give away their power because they're afraid to step into expertise, but it's almost kind of like there's three layers, right? One is like making yourself small and speaking and really, you know, softly and not taking up space and saying, I don't know, well, maybe, you know, wishy-washy. The next layer is when you're pretending to be an expert and you're like booming it, but you're actually secretly defensive. And then the third layer is where you're really grounded in what you know, and you're grounded in being able to be curious about what happens when you're bringing your expertise out there into the world where it can actually make a difference, right? I think true expertise is actually also about learning and not just about teaching. Yeah, I agree. I mean, everybody loves to hear Brene Brown speak, and I've heard her speak a number of times. And what what I find fascinating is every time I hear her speak, she talks about how she locks herself in her office and she just does research for months and months and months. And then she has this amazing talk that she gives afterwards. And people think that people become experts and they're gifted with that. And some people are gifted people, but most of the experts, that expertise comes from a a level of diligence in research. And like you said, continual learning and everybody is capable of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So where yeah. can people learn more about you and and how you work with people on shifting their careers from mid-career to what they are looking for in their career? If you go to buildyourselfworkshop.com, that's my website. I'm also on Instagram and I'm also on LinkedIn. I have, so I have a couple ways that I work with people. My flagship program is called the Creative Career Blueprint. And it helps women get clear and confident in their career path and integrate creativity into it. So if you're at a juncture where you're trying to, you kind of know you might need to step into expertise or into leadership, but you're not sure exactly what you want to do. The Creative Career Blueprint, it's my career direction process, and it helps get rid of some of that uncertainty. And it also trains you in power habits, which are, um, we didn't chat about them, but they're basically how you operationalize doing the things that scare you in the day-to-day. There's info on that. And then I also work with women who are growing in their careers and then also business owners through one-on-one coaching, including coaching on thought leadership and actually stepping into your expertise. Okay. And I'll put links to both of those in the show notes as well. Yeah. That'd be great. Maya, thanks so much. This was great. I feel like we could have seven podcasts together and maybe we will. (laughs) Well, to many collaborations in the future. So you're definitely a business wing woman that I really like collaborating with. So thanks for having me on, Julie. Okay, thanks. So what we learned here today is that your inner critic serves no functional purpose. It is, as Nicole said last week, nothing but head trash. And it's time to take the trash out because frankly, it's starting to stink. But only you can do that. Only you can take it out. Only you can acknowledge that this voice is not based in reality. If you write down the things that this voice says to you and then you read them out loud, you will discover what complete and total bullshit it really is. You are not abnormal if you have these feelings. Everyone except for narcissists have these feelings. But when you encounter these feelings, it might be because you are stretching your boundaries. You are taking action to further your career and moving past a limiting comfort zone. I think you should name your inner critic. Give it a name and then tell it to shut the fuck up. 
repeatedly until it doesn't talk to you anymore, until it's mute. Well, we aren't lighting anything on fire this week for the drink of the week. Um, Our drink is much more tame. Have I ever mentioned that I love, love, love me some Chardonnay? I don't understand those ABC people, the any anything but Chardonnay people. I absolutely love Chardonnay. And one of my favorite Chardonnays is Rombauer. It's a treat. I have friends who own a wine shop and they call Rombauer Cougar Juice, but I don't care. I love it. It's from Carneros, California, which is one of my favorite wine regions. And it is a big, buttery oak monster and I can't get enough of it. And if that makes me a cougar, so be it. And if the ABC people don't like it, that's all the more for me. As always, thanks for taking the time to listen, for allowing me to be part of your day. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on iTunes telling me what you like about the podcast so that I can keep bringing you the kind of content that best serves you. I will see you next week. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.